hace ya más de 12 años y antes de asumir mi primera presidencia me desligué absoluta y totalmente de la administración y gestión de las empresas familiares y de cualquier otra empresa en que hubiere participado. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of LATAM Dialogues, the podcast series in which the team at LATAM Dialogue bring you up to date on the most important news stories from Latin America over the past few weeks. I'm Isabel, one of the editors at LATAM Dialogue, and you just heard Chile's president, Sebastián Piñera, denying any wrongdoing after being accused of bribery and tax crimes in the controversial sale of a mining company. This revelation was brought to light by the Pandora paper leaks which have shed light on the activities of richest and most powerful people across the world. Latin America being no exception, as it is in fact one of the regions with the most offshore accounts evidenced by the Pandora Papers. We'll hear more about this in the second part of the podcast when I speak to our editor-in-chief, Sonia. But first, let's hear from our other editor at LATAM, Lucas Reynoso, who will be giving us the latest on the legislative elections in Argentina. Hi, Lucas. Thanks for joining us uh, again and for researching the topic. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for having me here to talk about the Argentine elections. Great to have you. So from my understanding, Argentina is holding its midterm elections next month on November 14th. However, last month on September 12th, the PASO primaries took place. Um, Lucas, can you tell us a bit about how the Argentine electoral process works and also maybe what is at stake in the legislative elections and what the function of the primaries held in September are? Um, so basically every two years, Argentines hold legislative elections. They elect half of the members of the Chamber of Deputies, which are four-year terms, and a third of the Senate senators serve uh, two years more, six-year terms. So legislative elections have a dual purpose. On the first aspect, they are about controlling Congress in itself or control over the legislative chambers. And then the second aspect, which is very important, is symbolic. Is it, it, They function as a kind of plebiscite of how the government is doing, performing midway its uh, term. And well, then, besides or uh, aside of the, of the legislative elections, since 2011, primaries are also held two months before. So the last ones were last month. And the primaries in Argentina are very important and they are quite unique because participation is compulsory uh, and open to everyone, to, to all uh, citizens that can vote. They are not just for party members like in other countries. When they were established, they aimed to democratize parties and give people the ability to choose candidates that they thought represented best each, each party. And yeah, basically they are electing the candidates that will go to the election uh, next month. And while this year we have numerous parties with alternative lists, but mostly the, the, the parties presented only a single list. And, and while parties that obtain more than 1.5% uh, of the vote are able to participate in the election in November. So yeah, and basically they serve as a very accurate poll of, 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 of how the, the electoral process is going or what people are going to vote in November. Okay, Lucas, thank you for explaining that. Um, 
it's clearly quite a complex process. So my second question for you is, um, who are the main political actors participating in the midterm elections? So, so uh, to understand this, I, it's important to understand that Argentina nowadays is divided into two big opposing coalitions and it's very polarized. On one hand, you have uh, the Peronists that are named uh, after their allegiance to General Juan Perón, who was president of Argentina in the mid 20th century and briefly in the 70s. It's difficult to summarize Peronism. We could do a whole podcast about that. But basically, they are center left, but they also have politicians more towards the left and more towards the right. The current president is center left. Uh, he leads the coalition, Alberto Fernandez. The coalition is uh, named Frente de Todos. But the key aspect is that he leads the coalition alongside Cristina Fernandez, who is the vice president, probably the most important politician in the 21st century in Argentina. She is the former president as well. She served two terms between 2007 and 2015. She's more inclined towards the left. On the other hand, we have uh, the Juntos por el Cambio coalition, uh, in English, Together for Change. They are center-right coalition led by uh, PRO, which is a party that was born in the city of Buenos Aires in 2005. And, and it's led by Mauricio Macri, or was led by Mauricio Macri, who, who governed Argentina between 2015 and 2019. Well, then there's numerous smaller parties, some more towards the right, some more towards the left, but most of the vote is concentrated in these two big coalitions. So ironically, uh, these two big coalitions, they mostly presented single lists, their exceptions, but they basically didn't decide to solve their tensions or divisions in the primaries. But even if presenting single lists, the internal tensions are running high in both coalitions, especially in the government. In the government, the vice, vice president, Cristina Fernandez, she's starting to show signs of being uh, against of austerity measures in the government. And she's pushing to maintaining and increasing subsidies in a context in which poverty is very high. Uh, almost 40%. It's difficult because the margin of maneuver of the government is also very limited. The fiscal deficit is huge. Inflation is around 50%. Uh, the debt is also huge. Currently, the government is, is negotiating uh, how to pay an IMF loan that the IMF gave to the previous government for more than $40,000 million. So the government has very restricted margins, but uh, the vice president, Cristina Fernandez, is demanding or, or uh, asking for more public spending, basically. So the tensions are, are very high. And the next question for you, Lucas, is um, about the results of the primaries. So what were the main results and what do these results mean? So basically, I think that we can divide results into three main uh, points. The first point, uh, which is very important, even if you wouldn't uh, necessarily think about it, is uh, what I said before, the, the purely symbolic uh, result, because nothing has happened in the sense that the real election, uh, which will decide the composition, the seats in the Congress is next month. But in terms of the symbolic result of having this very accurate poll, it was 
a very important aspect that the government had a huge catastrophic defeat. They lost 18 out of 24 districts, including the province of Buenos Aires, which is seen as the main district because it has 40% of the national vote. And it's in there where the Peronists are quite strong. So this has left the government very weakened, having lost a huge share of the vote that took them to power in 2019. They obtain nationally 34% of the vote, whereas in 2019, they had obtained 48% uh, of the vote. And then a second aspect is the purely legislative uh, result. If this result is repeated next month, the government will lose control of the Senate. And this is not irrelevant because it will be the first time that the Peronists lose control of the Senate since the return of democracy in 1983. And then a third aspect, which I think is quite interesting, is the, the smaller parties, because it's very interesting that there is an increase of anti-systemic protest votes. Not, not only were abstentions or uh, blank votes, we call them, very high, uh, around 6%, but also there were a large share of people choosing to vote the more towards a more radical left, but also a, a very large share, especially in the city of Buenos Aires, choosing to vote for the liberals, where in, which in Argentina are the more economically towards the right. In the city of Buenos Aires, a very aggressive, radical right-wing uh, candidate, kind of like a, an Argentine Donald Trump in some ways, and that type of style of anti-systemic TV-related personality he achieved more than 13% of the votes. And he's very popular among young voters, which is quite surprising. But at the same time, young people are disenchanted with traditional politics. Um, and I think that's a sign of concern. He's probably going to obtain more. He's called Javier Milei. He's going to obtain more votes in, the, in November. And, and it's literally a candidate who has as one of, its, of his main promises or main proposals to... Uh, set, the, set the central bank on fire. So, yeah, that's something to watch. Okay, yeah, that is very interesting, especially his, you know, popularity, as you said, with the, the kind of younger generation of Argentinians. So if the government was weakened, what impact do you think these results would have in terms of governance in the future? Um, so maybe that was the most surprising outcome because... Two main points. As I said, uh, there were uh, huge tensions in, in, in the ruling coalition, the government coalition. And after the primaries, they were publicly exposed uh, very clearly, probably for the first time, because before they were like a secret or uh, something that was spoken by the media, but was not really exposed uh, publicly. Whereas now it was there for everyone to see, basically the vice president asked the ministers that were loyal to her to present a resignation to the consideration of the president, but still presenting or, or putting the resignation forward to the president. And this was seen as a huge way of undermining the government's legitimacy or credibility. And she also published a letter very critical of the president asking, supporting his legitimacy, but also asking him to make her decision of appointing him as her running mate years ago uh, worth it or to honor that decision. 
And then the second aspect is that all this crisis, uh, and it was a week of president of palace discussions and, and, and politicians going to the pink house of presidential palace or to Congress where the vice president sits and all sorts of discussions and tensions. This led eventually uh, to the crisis being resolved with a cabinet reshuffle. So eventually the president accepted the maneuver of the vice president, which was meant to uh, force a cabinet reshuffle. But at the same time, the reshuffle was not as deep as probably the vice president wanted. The chief of cabinet, who was very loyal to the president, uh, was forced to move towards the Minister of Foreign Affairs, which is still a very important position. And the new chief of cabinet is a governor, the former governor. Well, he's a governor now, he's on leave, but the governor of the province of Tucuman. That was very controversial among feminist groups because he is a politician that was very criticized a few years ago because he was seen as impeding an abortion of a 11-year-old girl that was raped. And my final question for you, Lucas, um, is how you see things going forward in Argentina and what are your, your, your thoughts on this? Uh, so I think the prospects for the government are pretty grim. I think it will be very difficult to overturn the result, but there are some aspects to consider. First, electoral participation in the PASO, even if it's compulsory, it's usually lower to the definitive elections. So maybe next month, there is a participation of a group that didn't vote last month and might alter the result. There will also be people that voted for parties that didn't have more than 1.5% of the votes, so they were eliminated. So those votes will go to other parties in the definitive elections. But I think the chances of, of overturning the result are, are still low. The campaign is getting into full speed again, but the polls don't seem to cha- show a, any real change. Maybe a decrease of the extent of the opposition's victory, but uh, not a huge change. At the same time, I do think that the government has some aspects to be positive about or to be quite optimistic about, or at least not be that pessimistic about, because despite of the huge fight between Cristina Fernandez and Alberto Fernandez, they did manage to keep their unity intact. And it seems like despite the tensions being displayed publicly, they are still united. I'm not sure whether the reshuffle will help or not, but we'll see. I think maybe one big question that we have to ask ourselves and and then November elections will be an answer, I suppose, to some extent, is whether people are asking the government to be more radically left-wing and to be less moderate because it has been relatively moderate until now, or whether they are asking the government to actually leave Cristina Fernandez behind and shift more towards the center and be actually more moderate. So it's difficult. Are people basically asking more Cristina Fernandez or less Cristina Fernandez? What should the president do? Should he listen her more, listen to her more, or should he leave her aside? And, if, and also the big question: Can he leave her aside? I think that all the, the answers to all these questions remain very unclear. I think well, the government has established some plans to inject more money and subsidies into the economy due to the defeat in the PASO, so trying to overturn the result. 
they are postponing the austerity measures that the IMF negotiations demand. But I'm not sure whether this injection of money into the into the people's uh, pockets will actually uh, have a, a significant change. And well, as a final point for the opposition, it has also been very important because it has strengthened the leadership of uh, Horacio Rodriguez Larreta, who is the uh, current mayor of the city of Buenos Aires, and he's the leader of a more moderate wing within the opposition. Well, thank you very much, Lucas, for shedding light on what is a, a very complex topic, but I, I think you've um, given us a lot to think about. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the results are next month. Um, so we'll stay tuned for that. So thank you very much, Lucas. Thanks to you, Isabel. And yes, we'll keep our eyes open to regarding what happens in Argentina in the coming weeks. In the second part of this podcast, we will be discussing the Pandora Papers in Latin America. As many will have heard, in early October, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists published the Pandora Papers, the latest and largest in a series of major leaks revealing a complex underworld of offshore tax havens and the people who use them. Western media, including investigative documentaries from the likes of BBC Panorama and The Guardian, have tended to focus on powerful people implicated in the papers, from places like the UK, Russia, and the UAE. But what about Latin America? Which Latin American politicians and celebrities have been exposed in the mega leak? And what repercussions has this been having in the region? With me to discuss this topic today is our very own um, editor-in-chief, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for being here again. Hi, Izzy. Thanks for interviewing me this week. So I've kind of given a brief explanation of the Pandora Papers, very brief in fact. So could you um, go into a bit more detail and explain what these um, papers actually are? Yeah, of course. So as you just mentioned in your introduction, the Pandora Papers are one of the largest ever investigations in the history of journalism. And they basically look into the hidden and shadowy and offshore financial activities of the world's elite and the wealthiest, including the world leaders, athletes, artists, and other billionaires. And it basically just has exposed the activities that they do to avoid paying taxes and thereby increase their wealth. So the project itself involved over 600 journalists from 100 countries in the world. And these journalists basically put together a catalogue of papers, um, which basically consists of almost 12 million confidential records obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. So these documents include emails, they include videos, photos, spreadsheets, real estate contracts, anything, you name it, is part of the Pandora Papers. Um, and I think many will have heard of the Panama Papers, which um, were released a few years ago. So the Pandora Papers basically builds off of this. Um, but to a much larger scale. So the Panama Papers um, were based on information from one single offshore service provider and the Pandora Papers are from 14. So the Pandora Papers is like an unprecedented scale of journalistic activity. Wow, it's kind of hard to fathom just how much money we're talking here. It's really, really crazy. So could you tell me um, what the role of Latin America is in all of this? 
Yeah, of course. That's why we're here today. Um, because as you said, I've also been reading a lot about the um, Pandora Papers and none of the big headlines have mentioned Latin America, which is quite surprising because first of all, um, we have to mention that there were very many Latin American journalists and news outlets that were involved in the investigation themselves. From Latin America, 30 media outlets and more than 100 journalists from 19 countries in the region were involved in gathering these documents and uncovering the truths behind the wealthy in the region. Um, and a lot of um, independent media from Latin America and small and medium-sized journalistic organizations um, were part of this and actually it's quite interesting to see how in the last few weeks the relevance of small and medium-sized independent journalistic activity has actually gained a lot more respect and strengthened in the region but actually the Pandora Papers for other reasons have also put Latin America in the spotlight um, that's why I'm actually quite surprised why, why the region hasn't been spoken about more. Um, actually of the 14 legal and financial service companies whose files were leaked by the ICIJ Eight of these, so over half, are from Latin America. And actually 14 of the 35 current and former heads of state named in the data are from Latin America and the Caribbean. So actually the region has a very big role to play in both uncovering these truths and also who these truths are about. Uh, that's really interesting, Sonia, and I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that, as you say. Um, so let's talk more about these 14 Latin American ex or current heads of state um, that were actually named in the papers. Can you tell me who they are and what they are accused of? Yeah, exactly. So like you just said, um, the chapter on Latin America in the Pandora Papers mentions 11 former Latin American presidents and three current heads of state. I won't go through all of them. Instead, I'll just focus on the current heads of state that are mentioned in the Pandora Papers. Um, so the first is Ecuador's president, Lasso, who we've actually previously talked about in on the podcast already. And according to the Pandora Paper documents, Guillermo Lasso has ties to 10 offshore companies and trusts in Delaware, Panama and South Dakota. Lasso himself maintains that the use of, off of, of all of his offshore accounts was legal and on the 12th of October, he actually released details of all of his tax payments from 2005 until 2020 um, in an attempt to put this issue to bed. The second current head of state that was mentioned in the Pandora Papers is Sebastián Piñera, who is the current president of Chile. So he's actually what a very wealthy man, even before he entered politics. And he made a lot of his money in the 1980s when he invested in a credit card company, LAN Airlines, uh, a TV channel and a football team, amongst other things. But the Pandora Papers specifically mentioned the sale and um, purchase of the Dominga mining project by the Piñera family back in 2010. In 2010, Piñera was already actually serving his first term in office. So apparently um, the children of Piñera used an offshore company to sell shares of the mining project, which was planned for um, Chile's north central coast in 2010. One of the projects was actually sold to a childhood friend of the president. So now today, Piñera maintains that he does not participate in the sale process and that he actually never received any information about it which is a bit difficult to believe considering a lot of his family was involved and the sale was done to one of his um, good childhood friends, as I mentioned. The third and final current head of state that was mentioned in the Pandora Papers 
um, is the current Dominican president, Luis Abinader. Links of him having ties to two offshore companies in Panama are mentioned in the Pandora Papers. The president defends his ties and and his assets abroad, and, and he argues that until recently, the Dominican Republic had not issued corporate laws that would prevent local companies from carrying out these types of actions outside its territory. So it's all a bit um, complicated and messy, really. Um, and then also, finally, I'd like to mention the fact that Shakira, the one of the most famous pop stars from Latin America, um, she was also mentioned by the papers. And she's actually currently facing criminal charges of around 16.8 million US dollars in tax evasion in Spain, where she's currently living. Um, and now the Pandora Papers have actually found um, Shakira's name on application forms from 2019 related to three firms in the British Virgin Islands. So her lawyers said um, Spanish tax authorities were well aware of the companies. And actually, the Pandora Papers have kind of shed light on her financial activities. And actually, I think what I found quite funny, I saw a headline in the well-known magazine Foreign Policy, um, and its headline was Hips Don't Lie and Neither Do Receipts. So unfortunately, Shakira has also been called, called out by these papers. That's that's a great headline. I'd not heard that before. I think it really is, you know, you couldn't make it up if you tried some of the stories coming out of these um, these papers and the people implicated. It's just... It is like a, a kind of bad film. Um, yeah. So what what are the effects of tax havens and offshore wealth um, in Latin America in general? Yeah, I think it's very important to talk about that because actually we talk about all the rich and how they hide all their money, but this actually does have serious consequences. And firstly, you know, we have to remember that Latin America is the most unequal region in the world and has very high levels of corruption. Um, And Latin America as a region loses $40,000 million a year to tax havens. So we're talking about a lot of money, which is not being paid in tax and is being stored abroad. Um, And actually in 2017, some economists from Berkeley estimated that this $40,000 million a year actually represents 20% of Latin America's wealth. So like I said, this matters because Latin America is one of the most unequal regions in the world. Tax evasion is one of the key factors behind um, its country's low levels of tax revenue collected when compared to their annual GDP. So according to OECD statistics, um, the organization's members, countries bring an average of 33.8% of their respective GDPs in taxes, Um, And in 26 Latin American countries, the average is only 22.9%. So that just shows that there is a massive amount of money that isn't being taxed and isn't being sent to the state. Interesting. And and my final question for you, Sonia, is, I mean, given the state of the world over the the past few months and the last year in particular with the pandemic, how have people in Latin America been reacting to this, given that many people have been having to pay more tax, been struggling to feed their families while the richest and the most powerful have been hiding, you know, vast amounts of money in, in these, in this way? Yeah, no, that's a good question, Izzy. So in Ecuador, for example, the opposition has already opened a congressional inquiry to determine whether Lasso committed any crime, 
Um, in Chile, the opposition party vowed to launch an impeachment probe into Piñera for allegedly using a policy decision he made as president to earn profits in his family. Um, and the opposition parties in the Dominican Republic also called for an investigation into their president, Abinader, for his involvement in, um, well, for his involvement in the Pandora Papers. So the general trend has been that the opposition has tried to use this and leverage this in their favor um, and to take legal action. I just think the problem is um, lots of sort of these heads of state and people that have um, been accused in the Pandora Papers have actually all argued and not even denied what they've been doing, but just said, well, it's legal. So what are you going to do about it, basically? So I think personally that the true story here is that people are realizing that the fact that these activities are legal, that that itself is the scandal. Yeah, so in that respect, many people are saying that the real fix is not just the pursuit of the individuals named in the Pandora Papers, but significant changes to the tax code itself. So I think it's also worth hypothesizing on what we're going to see happen in Latin America in the near future in reaction to these papers. Uh, on one hand, when there was um, the leak of the Panama Papers in 2016, there was no major wave of uh, regulatory change in the region. So I don't know if we can expect much change from the revelations from the Pandora Papers. However, it is worth mentioning um, that there is an example in Ecuador that really shows how these kind of revelations can help in some um, in some respects. So, for example, in Ecuador, Pandora Papers themselves revealed that Lasso, the president, actually dissolved eight of his offshore companies in 2016. And this came after Ecuadorians voted in a referendum to implement a law in Ecuador against elected officials holding investments in countries considered as tax havens. And this was uh, a vote in a as a direct reaction to the leak of the Panama Papers. So here, maybe it's not groundbreaking um, legislative change throughout the region, but it is an example of these revelations making a difference in a country. So now I guess time will only tell because these tax havens are very harmful to the economy. They just make the rich richer and they make the poor poorer and they deprive states of taxable income. And it, at the end of the day, um, the poor pay that difference. So hopefully real change will happen in the region. Well, as always, um, thank you so much, Sonia, for doing the research and for shedding light on the, the shady underworld of some of the most rich and famous in the world. Um, so we'll see, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Izzy. See you soon. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. As always, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye.